Because we were working with customer data, we focused on how can we appear larger than we are. So we worked backwards. We said, a company that's really large, what are they doing? This was, you see their ads everywhere. You see companies talking about them. You see them on LinkedIn and you see them at conferences. And if these are the four things that make a company appear large, how can we have like an 80-20 solution for all four of this? I'm Pep Lyle. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy? How much is luck and how do they win? This week, Christian Kletzel, CEO and co-founder at User Gems, a champion tracking software for sales. We'll see the process they went through to find the product their clients were willing to pay for. And we'll talk about how they make themselves appear bigger than they are. Let's get into it. Before User Gems became User Gems, it was a different company. That's right. Yes. It's a long pre-story. The real User Gems started 2019. That's when we, went, when we got first customs. But the company actually started in 2013. It's called Shelf Flip. Completely different company. It was a B2C solution focused on selling products online. What were the signs that you needed to change things up? We actually pivoted a few times. I think that it's interesting that the, the general theme kind of stayed the same. So basically what we did back then is we analyzed what you purchased online, then crawled publicly available data to tell you how much your products are worth right now if you want to resell them. And so, which is actually like, if you look at it, it's very similar to what we're doing now at user terms, which kind of like the private information of your own CRM combined with the public information of what people are doing now. But back then, it was ultimately the traction that we were getting. We found this would be really good for the environment. And it sounds really good at first, but actually nobody really has stuff worth reselling other than Apple products. And so it was just a, a very slow start that ultimately didn't go anywhere. Like we just never hit any form of real traction. Tell me how you found your first customers then for this new user gems. It's interesting how we found the first one. And it's interesting how long it actually took to find the second one, like to ultimately have someone sign it. You go through your network. For us, it was um, a friend was working in, in the marketing department. And she said that her boss talked about a very similar motion. And then she just pushed us in the company. She vouched for us at the company. And then we like, ultimately convinced the CEO. And I think back then it was your the small startup that nobody knows, that nobody trusts. So it was all about, can we show the value of the product? So very, very hands-on. We met with them in their office regularly, at least once a week, go through what we've done, go through the, the success that we've seen so far, the changes we need to make. So basically being in the office as often as possible in their office so we can get real-life feedback. But I think what, what's, what's really interesting on this is like, they, they ultimately became our first customer. They paid us quite a bit, like 50,000, which was phenomenal back then, right? This was an insane amount of money for a startup that has never like, had a functioning product before. But the interesting thing is, despite this, it took us three months to get the second customer. Like, I think in SaaS, it's just sometimes like you just need, like you, you, people have their goals, people have their OKRs, people have their priorities for the quarter. And it might just be that that quarter you don't fit in, but next quarter you do. So for B2B, it's just really about uh, like sticking to it for a certain time. Because like it took us three months to get the second one. And then it took us two months to get the third one. And then one month. 
And then suddenly there was a little bit more the avalanche then, but it's all about actually sticking to it. The first customer was 50K. Did you decide upfront that you're going to be an upmarket product? Man, I wish there was a sophisticated answer to this. I think it's about what do we find? Because I think that the second one is actually, the second one paid us 10K. So that was quite a big of change. That second one is actually still a customer. They're now paying us 100K. Back then, it was a sales function. There's this very famous article around what are you hunting? Like what, what size of animal are you hunting? Mm-hmm. And for a sales motion to work, you need to charge like at least 10K, I think was like the, the, the thought back then. I think it actually needs to be more on average, but I think that's just what we need. Companies often move up market, even if they start out cheap. The unit economics are better because the deal sizes get bigger. You can spend more to acquire customers. And the retention of bigger customers is also better. Here's an example of how to do that from Christoph Jans, who created the hunting analogy Christian mentioned. He's the managing partner at Point9, the Berlin-based VC firm. New Relic is a great example of a company that morphed from a deer hunter into an elephant hunter. How did they do that? They added several new products. When they IPO'd, New Relic still had only one product. Um, as far as I remember, at least, they are now at four products, which they've added over the years. And they've been very aggressive and successful in upselling their existing customer base to these new products. They also aggressively went up market and targeted bigger and bigger customers. So bigger customers and more products. And uh, by doing this together, they were able to focus on customers with 100k plus ACV. So if you read their uh, financial statements or like the the commentary now, it's all about these 100k plus ACV customers. That's that's really what they focus on. And 56% of their ARR now comes from enterprises with a thousand plus employees. And they are now also closing more and more whales. And it's an interesting lesson that just because you start in a certain customer segment or with a certain type of animal doesn't mean that you have to be stuck in that. Did you decide to become sales-led company from the get-go? Yes, purely by like, just trying out what works. And ultimately, we I'm, I'm not even a salesperson. Like I was our first salesperson, but ultimately this is just what worked. We thought, how can we get feedback as quickly as possible? And for us, this was, all right, let's reach out to a whole lot of people and see in the first phase, can we get any feedback on the product? And then if we can get feedback on the product, the next phase is then selling to them. But interestingly, like getting feedback and selling to them is a very similar emotion. What's an example of a piece of feedback that you got that made you change something? Basically, you can argue we're in the data space. The feedback really from the first customer we got is like, we thought, hey, we give you the data. Like, in our case, the data is job changes. So ultimately the information, this person who was your buyer here is now an executive here, for example. And we thought that we're a data company, we give you this information, and then you know what you do. Like you, you have a sales motion, someone gets notified, someone reaches out and turns them into like a customer again, hopefully. But the feedback we got is so, okay, thanks for that. What should I do now? So we very quickly realized we're actually not a data company. And now I'm very, very like, insistent on we're not a data company. We're a workflow company. Like we're an intent company. 
we enable you to do a certain sales play that happens to be powered by data. But ultimately, data alone is, is not enough. So is that kind of like um, selling timber versus selling furniture? You go up the value chain. Yes, yes, absolutely. I then think about value creation versus value capture. And I, I really like your example. So if you were to look at which of the, the large companies in the space, I'm pretty sure you would see the furniture companies way more than the lumber companies. Because ultimately, you need to stick out and you need to be as close as possible to the value that the customer sees. And I think there's a commoditization around data, but not around the, the workflow and the value creation with the data. If you think about value capture, you, you want to be the, the workflow. Well, tell me more. So what does being a workflow company mean and how did you guys go about it? In our case, you need Salesforce access, right? It means... I'm not only giving you the data, I'm making sure that something gets done with the data. And early on, we were a small company. This is a large organization. They just said, I'm not giving you Salesforce access. Just give me the CSV data. The valuable lesson and, and the painful lesson was that actually these companies weren't successful with it because there was a crucial element missing. And so now we're in a position where we say no, because we know that you're not as successful if you just get the data than if we make sure you actually orchestrate what's next with the data. Give me some examples of how you enable this workflow. In our case, if there's a job change happening, uh, this person can join a customer account, an account with an open opportunity, a target account, or an account I don't care about because I don't sell to them. And based on, on these four scenarios, there's a different person who should do a different action. They join a customer account, it's either the CS or the account manager, open up is AE, otherwise it's an ADR. So there are already three different. So we need to make sure that a job change gets routed in your system, assigned to the right person. That person then gets a notification because right now there's so many, so much data, so much intent signal that an organization has. So now there's this flood of data for each individual person in the sales organization. So if you don't make sure they get a notification, and if you don't want to make sure they know what to do with that, then it gets lost. So this means we take care of routing. We take care of notification. We go as far as to say, here is recommended messaging that we push into your outreach or sales loft. And also this job change, we push directly into a sequence. The first step being manual, so you can still look over it. But basically, it arrives at the very last step. And then we go as far as even to look into how many steps did you do? Like, did this drop off after one step? So ultimately, we learned where is the drop off? Why you not, Why is someone not seeing results? And now we push for it, like every single step along the value chain to make sure you get the value. Something I have learned. Offer prescriptive suggestions over assuming folks will figure it out. If you give people access to data, what will they do? Mostly nothing. Folks assume data will tell you what to do, but it doesn't. Data is passive, it's just there. So if you give folks data and assume they'll figure out what to do about it, they mostly won't. I saw this all the time back when I was doing consulting. Well, let's log into Google Analytics and see what the data says, uh, the customer told me. Well, of course, the data didn't say anything. To make data useful, it needs to come with action. Now do this, then do that. The more specific, the better. 
For example, send this particular email with this particular content to this particular person on November 9th. Patrick Temple of Profitwell fame also has data that workflow products just retain better. And so what we kind of found, this is like a little bit of bonus thing on retention. When we look at churn rates across different types of products, those products that are workflow products you use every single day or mostly every single day, or those products you don't have to log into, but you still get the value, that's where the lowest churn rates are, the highest retention. Anything in the middle, it's like death. And this is why Profile Metrics ended up being free because we were just like, it's, it's terrible to build a metrics an analytics product. It's so hard because people just don't appreciate how much work goes into it. Therefore, they don't retain at a high rate. They don't want, they're not willing to pay that much. How long did it take you to get to a first million in revenue? From first revenue, I think somewhere in the range of 12 to 18 months, probably closer to the 18. Um, I think the hardest one is actually, I would say not giving up. Um, my my co-founder always shows this video. It's a really fun video of, of a guy dancing um, at a festival on a hill completely alone. And he, this person looks like a maniac until a second person joins. And then both look like maniacs. And then a third, a fourth, and suddenly it's a crowd. And I think you need to understand at what point you're the maniac. Like you're, you're, you're always the maniac, right? At the beginning. But the question is, is there a second maniac joining you or not? And I think that's the same with B2B sales, understanding when to give up because the product isn't going anywhere and when to pivot. Gary Tan, CEO of Y Combinator, explained how he thinks about pivots in his conversation with YC partner Gustav Alstromer. One of the big, awesome questions that founders should always ask themselves, what do I know and what do I believe that nobody else knows or believes? And that's actually sort of the core of a lot of the pivots that really work incredibly well. My favorite one is actually Clipboard Health. So this is a company that came in as uh, a hiring, really uh, almost like an Indeed, but for nurses. Somewhat of an idea that we see quite frequently. Hiring is a big problem, and there are a lot of nurses. How do you walk into that market and be successful? And it turns out that if you're just doing Indeed, but for nursing, it's going to be a slog. Like, there isn't really a why now. And that is actually what We Deng, the founder, found for... Uh, actually a couple of years. Uh, but the cool thing about her is that she just spent enough time selling to hospitals and just talking to everyone around the hospital. She realized when a nurse would call in sick, they would always have to go to an agency. And that's what really was sort of the key insight that made Clipboard go from a startup that was just really trying to you know, create another Indeed for nurses to now one of the biggest software-enabled skilled nursing facility sort of agencies. So I worked with her in the early days when I was at YC was how she adopted the doing things that don't scale motto like so well. And she didn't really build a lot of software early on to solve these problems. Like she literally spent trying to say exactly what is the problem that I'm, I need to solve. And like, maybe I can just like manually solve this problem. And that's what she did. Um, she manually coordinated um, getting these nurses in front of the, these hospitals. And it wasn't until she'd done this a few times and she's like, okay, there's an opportunity to build software here and automation, which is so difficult for founders because founders love using software to solve the problems and love getting into the code editor. That is, can be extremely distracting in a pivoting process and trying to overbuild things when you really need to just understand the problem that someone's having. And what is your point of view on this? How, how do you decide? I think the simple rule for B2B is two years. Yeah? Like you need to give it two years. And I, I think I, I totally subscribe to that just to make sure you know what you're signing up for. If you start a B2B startup, you already need to plan that it takes two years. 
But I think the, the other, like the easier or the harder lesson, I don't know, that, that we learned is like, if it looks like it's not going anywhere, what we always did is what is the craziest, like, um, most unsustainable version of this? And if that version isn't working, then our like non-crazy version isn't working either. So I give an example, like back then when, like when we had this selling product, we thought, all right, what if we like, instead of just selling it online, what if we go to household, put a box in front of their door and say, just put everything in there and we're going to sell it for you. And we tell you how much it's worth and then we sell it for you and we bring you the money and we pick it up and like we do everything in this value chain. And since then that didn't work, we just called it a day and said, okay, we need to do something. My company Winter launched as copy testing, selling to B2C companies. From the get-go, it was hard, but of course, which startup isn't hard? Still, I decided to do a small pivot six months after we launched. The signs were there. Our supposed ICP didn't really have the problem we were solving for them. They didn't care too much about our differentiated value. And also the competitive landscape of consumer research was just extremely saturated. After a series of small and successful experiments, we pivoted to B2B focus and saw an immediate improvement in traction. Once you reached 1 million in revenue and then on your journey to 10 million, what changed? So many things. Um, I think, I mean, we, we, we raised venture capital around the 600K mark. So we, we also were actually able to, to hire employees. And I think what, what that meant is that we were able to hire specialists in each role. I think it's this whole, the C, like the, the founding team does pretty much everything in the organization. Like I was the first SDR, the first AE, the first CSM. And, and suddenly you actually have, like you can hire people that are actually good at these roles. And I think that, that was the first thing that changed. So we were able to like slowly optimize each process and each function. Yeah. In terms of your product strategy or go-to-market strategy, did it stay uh, the same or did it evolve? I think it's just these slow transitions. Like if you look, we had, we had one marketing motion that worked really well for us. And we were just always scared that this runs out without having a second one. So um, for us, I think the biggest one, once we hit about a million, was to think, all right, in our eyes, we are now a real company. In everyone else's eyes, we're still a really, really, really small startup. So how can we, and, and because we were working with customer data, for us, I think the biggest one we focused on is how can we appear larger than we are? And so in a sense, we worked backwards from this. So I think that the biggest motion from one to 10 million was for us like to be everywhere. So in a sense, we said a company that's really large, what are they doing? And like for us, this was, you see their ads everywhere. You see companies talking about them, you see them on LinkedIn, and you see them at conferences. And if these are the four things that make a company appear large, how can we have like an 80-20 solution for all four of this to make sure that we appear much larger than we are? And I think that the, the difficult thing there is that as with every like, uh, marketing motion that you do, it takes time. So I think we, we started this when we were 1 million, and now I would say like, I don't know, two, three years later, we are now seeing actually the fruits of What specific things did you decide to do? The first is the LinkedIn strategy. We are really loud on LinkedIn as an organization. We have a social media person 
whose job it is not only to manage our social media, but actually to make sure that every one of our employees posts on LinkedIn. And I think there are a few organizations that did this really, really well. Like a gong always had this very orchestrated blast. And ever you saw, suddenly you saw gong everywhere. So for us, it's about identifying where are our buyers. In our case, we sell to sales and marketing. These people are on LinkedIn all the time. So it was for us like, be really loud on LinkedIn. So it's a company goal um, from the top down. I post on LinkedIn all the time. We have the social media person so that our team posts all the time, which means you see us everywhere. And then we are... It's not only about, and then the second piece is like ads. So this is kind of like the supporting motion, but it's very important to be very deliberate about this. And so what I mean by that is our sales and marketing motion is very orchestrated. We have a few hundred companies that we target each month. So if we decide to uh, target you that month, then we go all in, which means you see our messages, like you get our messages, then the very same people, not just companies, but the very same people see our ads on LinkedIn and pretty much everywhere. And we, we spend more money than you would usually do in the scenario just to make sure that ultimately people tell us, I see user terms everywhere. And then the last one is actually having case studies and people talking about us. So we identify the moments companies and individuals are successful with user terms. And then we go all in on this and we make sure they talk about us. We make sure we have case studies. If we produce several case studies a month, post them and then advertise them on LinkedIn so that you see the success of user terms everywhere. We have an OKR that says, I see user terms everywhere. And we hear this continuously in our sales calls. Tell me about the competitive landscape. Uh, when you got started, were you the only one doing what you're doing and how has that changed? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we are in data space. I think it, it also means to be a realistic about the competitive landscape, which means I think back then there were a few that were like adjacently thinking about, hey, I've got data, I can probably also support this use case. But if you're not leaning into it completely, then you never deliver a good experience. So I think this was from the beginning, there were data providers that said, hey, we can do that too. But for job change, you need really accurate, um, just in time information. And so we were leaning heavily on, we are fully focused on that use case. Based on this, we grew. And now I think we've seen kind of like a second wave where there are companies that are trying to do exactly what we are doing, um, probably based on seeing our success. And so, I mean, right now, pretty much like every data provider has some kind of champion tracking. And it's really about understanding the differences. And if, if you're not fully focused on that use case, if you're just providing the data, if you haven't learned the painful lessons from hundreds of customers of everything that can and will go wrong, then you're ultimately not as successful. And I think that's what really speaks for us. If you go with us, you, you benefit from the lessons we've learned along the way. There's a saying that, you know, every tech space, every company essentially, eventually will get commoditized. I mean, competitors will catch up. Features are not too hard to replicate. Uh, and so then what is the, what is the ultimate moat here? Yeah. How, how are you going to win 10 years from yeah. now? Um, I, I think moat is such an interesting question from pretty much every VC for every startup. And in reality, there are very, very few that actually have a moat. So I think when you really, again, site created a category is clearly the number one. It has, I don't think there's a specific moat they have. 
I think most ultimately comes down to do I trust that I'm more successful with you than with others? So I actually would say that our moat right now and probably for the future is the brand recognition of the company. Like um, ultimately our motion is very directly tied to revenue. Um, we see that like this is, a, this is a new channel. If you start with user channels, you add 10 to 15% of your revenue. And interestingly, it's scaling. Like the larger you get, the more people you have that you can track. So this means now it's 10%. In five years, it's still 10% because you're scaling. And so the job changes are scaling, which is one of the very few motions where that's the case. But um, and ultimately, that just means that if you go with someone else, you lose a few percent, but a few percent can ultimately result, the result in hundreds of thousands of dollars. You made multiple strategic bets along the way. You, know, you decide, decided to become a workflow company, uh, invest heavily in brand, become you know, famous on LinkedIn. Um, what were the trade-offs of these decisions? If you talk data workflow, we learned where can we not be successful? Where can we make you not successful? And for us, this means if you are working with a CRM that we are not familiar with, like there is there's Salesforce, there's HubSpot, and then there are 50 other companies, like let's say iDynamics, a, a Soho, even a Marketo can be seen as such. If we're not familiar with that CRM, then we cannot help you optimize. And ultimately, we're going back to being a data player. So the, the trade-off for us is actually very, very painfully saying no to these customers. But I think for a functioning company, that's actually, that's how you see that you're growing because you're saying no to revenue. And I think we've now, like we've said no to what is more than a million dollars in ARR because it doesn't help us if you give us the money now, but you're not successful. What advice would you give to fellow B2B SaaS founders? I think the first one is, is really understanding when to give up and when not to give up. I, I really think this is ultimately the most important lesson. And basically, if you commit to B2B, um, you need two years. Everyone says it, but it is actually really true. And I think especially if you're a technical founder, that's not something you want to do, but you need to talk to customers and, and you need to push for actually the honest answer which is really hard because nobody wants to say no to this, this new startup founder. But if you're not solving an important use case that, that keeps someone up at night, then you're not getting the money anyway. So basically go for as many as quick no's as you can get. I think that's the first one. I think the second one is just also in this environment, but like even if you raise money, try to spend as little money as possible. Um, like I think the more you can have your own destiny in your hands, the better. Like I've seen a lot of companies that raise money and then invest way too quickly. And then now there are all these painful decisions. How did user gems win? First, they went up the value chain. We very quickly realized we're actually not a data company. We enable you to do a certain sales play that happens to be powered by data. Second, they said no to revenues that didn't fit because they knew who their ICP is. Now we're in a position where we say no, because we know that you're not as successful if you just get the data, than if we make sure you actually orchestrate what's next with the data. Finally, they focused on appearing bigger than they were to add to their credibility. 
We spend more money than you would usually do just to make sure that people tell us, I see user terms everywhere. We have an OKR that says, I see user terms everywhere. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.